So, who has started counting down the days to Christmas? How many of you have got an Advent calendar with, um, yeah, it's one of those kind of things that I'm starting in two minds about. Is it just a commercial thing to sell you chocolates and get you focused on stuffing as many chocolates into your face before Christmas has even started? Or is there something holy about waiting with eager expectancy for the moment when we remember that Jesus Christ came into the world? Maybe a bit of both. Anyway, here we are every year. We, we start preaching through the Advent Christmas series, and at least for the last couple of years, someone has preached on this passage, John 1. And so what, what new might I have to bring to you? Is it even worth me saying anything new at all? Why not just play the, the sermon recorded from when Sam did it last year, or Lynn the year before? And Sorry, we didn't have recordings from three years back. But um, I, Anyway, I was thinking about that question, and, and I realized... It's kind of the, the same question that whoever it was that wrote John's gospel, what might his name have been? Might it have been John? We'll come to that. Um, whoever wrote John's gospel, he, he kind of had that, that same question. I'm sure when he came to write a gospel, there were already gospels. Certainly, Mark had already written a gospel that I think when you read John, you see, you see John assumes you've kind of read Mark. For example, when he comes to the story of Mary pouring the oil of Jesus over Jesus' feet. He says, this was the, the Mary who did this, and um, except it was a detail that if you're reading, John wasn't, wasn't there yet. And yet, he wasn't content with there already having been a gospel written down. He thought, no, I have got something to say. And, you know, maybe some of it will be the same as what you've already heard. Maybe some of it will be new. But the Spirit of God compels me, and if we were to be silent, the stones would cry out. So... Let's go. Um, so, so that is also motivating me this morning to come and try and give my 24 and a half minutes worth of, of personal revelation to share with you. Or if not revelation, at least I can give you alliteration. Here in this passage, we've got three W's. And so when you sit back down at your office computer tomorrow and type in www.google.com, you can remember the W's stand for the Word of God, the witness of John, and the wonder of Christmas. And before we get to the question of the Word of God, who is the Word of God. What is the Word of God? That most important question. I want us just to step back, and so we set the, the context up to, to start with the less important question. Who is John? John, it says, came as a witness to bear witness that all might believe through him. Who is John? Well, Obviously, as you read on, you realise he's talking about John the Baptist, who we know from the Gospel of Luke is, is actually Jesus' cousin, or second cousin, I don't know, once removed, maybe. Um, the, daughter, the, uh, the son of Elizabeth and Zachariah, and Elizabeth was a cousin or some sort of family relation to Mary, because when Mary gets pregnant, as we saw in the video, the angel comes to her, announces to her that she's going to have a baby. She goes um, to stay with her cousin Elizabeth for a few months and, and discovers that 
Elizabeth too. Well, the angel had told her Elizabeth too is having a supernatural baby. She's too old naturally to be having a baby, and yet she is. And so though you, Mary, are a virgin, you too might just be able, by the miraculous power of God, to have a baby. So she goes to Elizabeth, I guess, to check whether it's really true. Um, or possibly just to have that support of someone else who has experienced God's miraculous power. And then they have their babies. First Elizabeth has John, and we're not told much about John growing up, except that he grew up in the wilderness. And then Mary has hers, and we'll be celebrating that through these next weeks in this season of Advent and Christmas and Epiphany. And... But then John comes, preaching, calling the people of Israel to turn back to God and to be baptised as a symbol of their repentance and to receive the forgiveness of God. John came as a witness. And if you carry on reading John 1, although it's not in the passage today, you can hear about how, how the religious leaders come to John and ask, who are you? Are you the Messiah who we've been waiting for? Are you claiming to be? Because we, you know, we want to check thoroughly according to scripture that you're doing things properly. And John says, no, no, no. It's not me. But there's one coming after me who's going to be greater. And we'll get to Jesus, John's cousin, but more than just his cousin. But, but who is John this witness? Um, it's also the name of the writer of this gospel. The gospel according to John. Funnily enough, it's also the name of Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. If you read in Acts, you find out that, that Mark was actually John Mark, the, the son of someone called Mary, whose house it was, where the upper room, I think, was where they met for the Last Supper and probably still were still praying. I think that's the same upper room at the start of Acts, where certainly it's where Peter, after an angel delivers him from prison, goes to the house of, of Mary and John Mark and there's this awkward thing where the servant is astonished that it's Peter's voice but forgets to let him in uh, um, so that everyone can see him. But, but that John Mark, we, we see him in Acts and then he's taken by Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He isn't the best missionary at first and gives up at some of the first signs of trouble and Paul actually refuses to take him on his next missionary journey because he can't have these lightweights who might buckle at the first sign of pressure because when you're Paul you know you're going to probably be stoned and thrown into prison and so you want people beside you who you can trust but Barnabas says okay Paul maybe for you that's true for me I'm called to help lightweights become heavyweights I did the same for you remember says Barnabas to Paul and Paul's like well maybe but I'm taking Silas you take John Mark and so Barnabas carries on with that job of discipling John Mark. And he does it well. And we know that because Paul, in some of his other late letters, in I think Colossians, says, Mark is with me and he's very helpful to me in my ministry. And so no longer is he saying, well, you failed the test, I can't have you. But, but he's managed to pass that test. And Mark is the one who, who um, wrote that first gospel, the gospel of Mark, that, that Matthew and Luke base their Gospels on, and that John comes to read and thinks, okay, I, this whole idea of writing a Gospel is great, but, but you've missed out some bits that, that I need to, to share. And, um, but, yeah, because John who wrote John's Gospel is not John Mark who wrote Mark's Gospel. Most people assume that he's John, the brother of James, both of them the sons of Zebedee, who were among the Twelve Apostles. And 
That's a fair assumption. Maybe it's true. But I suggest to you, may, maybe it's not that John. And the reason I say is, is that John's gospel has a slightly different perspective from the more Galilee-centric perspective of, of Mark's gospel and Matthew and Luke. Um, and Mark is thought to be based on Peter's testimony. But, but John's gospel is more focused on Jerusalem. And, and on the, the, this mysterious character, the disciple who Jesus loved. Who, who could that be? Does Jesus only love one person? Or does Jesus love all? It could be anyone. But, but there's this, this hint at the end. As Jesus is arrested and he's taken to the courtyard of the high priest, it says that he went with the disciple who knew the guard on the door because he knew the, the people there in the high priest's courtyard. And so... Um, there's a New Testament scholar, Richard Borkham, who suggests that, that the writer of John's Gospel is called John, but he's not John the son of Jeb Zebedee. He's, he's this John that we just see a glimpse of in, in Acts chapter 4. John of the family of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests. And anyway, I, I, why is this relevant? Well, whoever you are, you are called to be a John. John came as a witness so that all might believe through him how could that happen by john himself telling everyone no but john started a movement and that movement multiplied jesus himself was humble enough to become part of that movement submitting to the baptism of john and so if you have been baptized as a sign of your submission to God's word and as a sign of your need for forgiveness and your repentance, then you are part of John's movement. And if you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and tasted of the, that immediate encounter with God, then you're part of the Jesus movement too. And these movements are not opposed to each other. They are one and the same movement. But if you are part of that movement, then, then you too are a John. What does John mean? In Hebrew, it means grace. You are a grace person and you are commissioned to go and tell people about the grace of God. And to ask them, who do you say that Jesus is? It's the question that Jesus asks his disciples in, in the middle of, of the, the kind of the gospel narrative. He says, who do people say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're a prophet. Some say your John the Baptist comes to life after he was killed by Herod. Bit weird, but I mean, maybe people can come back to life. <laughs> um, some say you're Jeremiah, some Elijah. And then Jesus changes the question from this general, who do people say I am to? Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And if we believe... That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Then, like Peter, we are rocks that Jesus is going to use to build his church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us as we go with the keys of the kingdom to set people free by telling them about who Jesus is. Which brings us to the question, who is the word? Well, the word is Jesus. We know that because it goes on to say the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is Jesus who the gospel story is about. But, but what, what is the word? If, if I say I'm going to preach the word this morning, 
You'll probably know because it's me that it's not just going to be one word, but it's going to be as many words as I can fit in to the short amount of time that I have before Sam starts giving me the eye and, come on, the kids need to come back in. And No, uh, when we say a word, it's, it's like, you know, come, can I have a, a word with you? And it turns into this long argument about something that you'd rather avoid talking about. Well, n no, not necessarily. The word, the logos, is the, the Greek word. And, and basically, in English, we have the word, the logic. Logic. Apparently, the Greek philosopher Heraclitus um, said, you know, the, the logos is the link between the rational structure of the universe and the rational part of our, our discourse, our conversation. Um, Heraclitus is also famous for, for talking about how you can never step in the same river once. I mean, twice. Um, because, you know, the water's always flowing, and so it always changes, and there's constant change. And yet there's a, a constant logic at the heart of the universe. And as you're having conversations with everyone, talking about who is Jesus, you might meet an atheist on the street that says, well, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. Which, you know, is not really how science is supposed to work. It's something you just believe in. Um, but... You might ask them the question, well, why does science work? Richard Feynman, who was Jewish by background, by, but atheist by conviction, there's this great quote from him that says, the fact that there are rules at all that physics might discover, or whatever your field of science is, he was a physicist, the fact that there are rules at all is some sort of miracle that we can't explain by science. But we just have to assume that the universe behaves in a consistent, logical way, and then we can do experiments to try and work out what the logic is that it works according to. But, but that idea that there is a logic, that can't be explained by science. It just has to be assumed. But for us, as Christians, we can say, look, in John 1, there's logic there. Because the logic was with God and the logic was God. The Word. It's... This mysterious, glorious, beautiful thing. And so let's go back to Greek philosophy and the context that John, from this well-educated priestly family, might have understood. Heraclitus had this idea of the Logos. Aristotle had talked about how to be a good preacher, to, or at least uh, a speaker, maybe a politician. You needed to have some good logic, some good words, but you also needed a good ethic, good character, and also a certain pathos, that, that conviction that would inspire feeling among your heroes. And so, well, you know, you can critique me afterwards and say, well, I'm not quite sure about the logic or the ethic of your character, Peter, but I'm sure you were feeling something, but <laughs> however, it didn't do it for me. Um, we'll talk about that afterwards. But, but there's something even there in this threefold thing that a, a speaker needs that does it speak of a God who is one, there is only one God, and yet appears at the start of Mark's gospel as, as father speaking to this human son, you are my son, and then the spirit coming down as a dove. Ethos speaks of the goodness, the transcendent goodness of God, pathos of the beauty of the Holy Spirit, which inspires us to feel the deep things of God, and logos, the truth of Jesus Christ. There was a Jewish uh, philosopher called Philo of Alexandria 
who's trying to work out how do I take hold of these true truths that I see in the Greek philosophers while also holding on to my Jewish Bible. And, and he, you know, started reading through his Old Testament saying, okay, God creates things. He creates things through his word in Genesis 1. That's kind of like, like what Heraclitus says about there being a word, a, a logic at the core of the universe. And, and then, okay, God uh, appears in the Old Testament not directly, but by the angel of the Lord. And so maybe that's the kind of the, the logos of God. This is just Philo of Alexandria. He's not even a Christian. And yet... That idea then John kind of takes hold of as he, I'm sure, is reading through Mark's gospel and thinking, okay, in the beginning, actually Mark's gospel goes, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark was one who would finish within his 24 minutes. Um, He gets things very concisely there. And then he goes straight on to John and then he shows us that picture of the Trinity with Jesus being baptized. But John here kind of stretches that beginning verse of the gospel out so it's a bit more exactly like Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But here, in the beginning, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. God is distinct. The Father is not the Son, and yet the Word and God are both God. This mystery of the Trinity, some say it doesn't make any sense. And yet, if what God is in his very nature is love, then maybe God has to be multiple in his personhood. Because otherwise, love that's just me loving me, you know, self-care is all very well. And, you know, that I might use my toiletries to scrub up in the morning as I may... um, not have managed to get clean shaven today or yesterday. Um, that's, that's all very well. But, but love is giving of yourself for another. And if that's the very essence of God, then maybe, maybe God has to be Trinity. Can we prove that just from this logical argument? Or do we need revelation? Well, maybe we need revelation. <laughs> but God is revelation. The word came that we might know him. And that is... The wonder of Christmas. This eternal word of God becomes flesh. Not just pretending to be a human. Not just like someone in a pantomime. You know, a man like me pretending to be an ugly sister by putting on a wig and speaking like this. But but Jesus became a human being fully and forever. Jesus is still human, although quite how it works with him being ascended to heaven, I don't know. But one day he will return and we will see him in his human body. And he will call forth a resurrected army of saints who who have finally been made holy, somehow, mysteriously, by God's grace, but fully holy, as holy as Jesus. And I almost imagine, you know, Jesus kind of disappearing into the crowd of all these holy people who were now worshipping God together forever and giving Jesus all the glory. And yet, where exactly is Jesus? We'd love to form a queue to get like our five minutes at last to see him directly. And yet, we're all shining with this glorious light of the glory of God. Because this, this 
destiny that we were made for to be the image of God that we've fallen so far from is restored through Jesus. The law came through Moses, but grace, which means John, John means grace, grace and truth came through Jesus and through him we have seen his glory. And now each of us can reflect the glory of God. And there's something thoroughly magical about, about Christmas because of that. Does the, the tree with its tinsel and Santa with all the silly stories of elves and whatever, does it, does it take away from Christmas? If it does, then, then forget Santa completely. But, but I kind of think it, it's just like a little appetizer because the true story of God coming into human nature to redeem us is the real deep magic of Christmas. The wonder that we can never fully comprehend. No matter how many times we hear the sermon saying this is what has happened. No matter how much we meditate on it. And yet as we meditate on it we can begin to, to understand a little bit more of it. As we were singing that song, Forever in a Day, Anu turns around and says, Daddy, forever in a day is still just forever, right? <laughs> and, you know, it's like that. God is infinite. And although each day we might get closer and closer to an understanding of him, there's still an infinite amount of things that we will never comprehend about God. But we can get closer, I think. So, let me pray. Jesus. Thank you that you are the word of God. Thank you that you became flesh so that we might become sons of God. Thank you for that right that you have given us through your grace to become sons of God. And I pray the wonder of that would transform us this Christmas, would transform the celebration and everything, that we would have a revelation of your glory and your grace like never before. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Peter, for such a powerful